A little over two years ago here on Political Theater, we spoke with Reed Wilson, national correspondent for The Hill, about his new book at the time, Epidemic, Ebola and the Global Scramble to Prevent the Next Killer Outbreak. We talked about Ebola, particularly how the United States government was the lead agent in preventing a global catastrophe back in 2013 and 14. And we also framed it in the discussion of the opioid epidemic two years ago and whatever lessons from the Ebola response we could glean. Well, we are in the next crisis, and we have Reed back on the show to talk about his book. Uh, we're glad that he could uh, take a little time with us. Before we replay uh, the, the March 21st, 2018 podcast, I wanted to uh, just talk with Reed a little bit about where we are now. Reed, welcome back to Political Theater. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, so, I mean, your book's subtitle, <laughs> The Global Scramble to Prevent the Next Killer Outbreak, uh, how'd we do? We learned basically, we, we did basically everything that was on the don't list. And we did very, very few things that were on the do list, the, the lessons that we were supposed to learn. This, this outbreak is going to be, if, if the last outbreak was a study in how unready the world was for a global pandemic, this one's going to be a study in how unready the United States was for a global pandemic. And, you know, we, we took some really important steps in the, in the weeks and months and years after uh, Ebola broke out to prepare the United States. And a lot of that work has been undone in the last couple of years. I mean, to, to the extent to which there are now ventilators being shipped from uh, the national stockpile that don't work because the administration decided to cancel a maintenance contract uh, that was supposed to keep those, those ventilators functioning. So we just, I mean, the, the, the level of failure here, we, we, are, we have only the slightest hint of it. And it is truly, it's not an exaggeration to say that the lessons we did not learn from Ebola are now costing American lives. And I mean, obviously, you know, we have a different president, uh, Donald Trump, who was elected in 2016. Uh, we had Barack Obama in 2014. I mean, that's the, you know, the biggest change at the top. But like, how did we go from, you know, as you as you say in the in the two years ago in our podcast, at the beginning, the United States was among the most aggressive you know, governments in sending over responders to deal with with Ebola in West Africa. How did we go from that so quickly? I mean, this was an ancient history. This was, you know, this was six years ago. And this was something that President Trump tweeted about like a hundred times in the in the the month uh, in which the crisis got really bad. So it's not like he didn't know about it either. I think our our global posture is what has changed. Look, as as I. I can't remember if I said this two years ago, but uh, it's certainly in the book. Like we're a globalized world. There are, you know, middle classes in uh, the U.S. and in Asia and in Africa and the Middle East who travel all over the world. Uh, we are an interconnected globe. Um, it, it, there's a disease that happens somewhere else spreads easily because there are so many vectors. Uh, there are so many ways for it to spread. And in the aftermath of the Ebola outbreak, one of the things the U.S. government did that was really smart is we funded basically the equivalent of a CDC, a Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in about 49 other countries around the, around the world. Uh, it was a, the, Tom Harkin slipped that into the Ebola supplemental bill. And his goal in doing that was to promote the surveillance, disease surveillance, so that we knew when something like a coronavirus breaks out in China, we, we knew what it was, we knew where it was, and we could surge the resources necessary to that area uh, to, to stop the virus before it became a global pandemic. Well, that money ran out, and a lot of those, those, of those 49 mini CDCs, only 10 of them still exist. 
um, there was another program that actually had U.S. scientists in a lab in Wuhan, China, that ended in October uh, of last year. It looks like the virus started really breaking out in November. So just a month later, uh, if we'd kept those people there another month or two, we might have stopped them. So look, this is the old, the, you know, the old adage: an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of. I can't even remember a pound of response. Um, and that's what we're seeing now. You spend a few billion dollars today, save trillions of dollars in the future. We as a species aren't very good at thinking in the long term. This is one of those moments where it's really come back to bite us. And, you know, getting back to that, that whole globalism versus nationalism, you know, President Obama was a sort of unapologetic internationalist saying we're an interconnected planet. We have to worry about climate change. We need to bring countries like Iran into the fold to negotiate with them to, so they don't develop nuclear weapons. President Trump uh, has the opposite approach. One of the appeals of of Trump is that if we just build his wall, right, we can keep all the bad things out. But when we had a more global, open approach from the person in the White House, we were able to address this quickly to to deal with Ebola. And now that we have the build the wall guy, we have an uncontrolled pandemic that we're just now beginning to grasp. Uh, you know, we, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about, you know, there we're seeing some glimmers of hope in New York that they're flattening the curve, uh, that there aren't as many death, any increases in deaths as there were. China is, as is reporting fewer and fewer deaths, even to the point where they were reporting no deaths. But you know, it wasn't a wall that did this. It was actually opening everything up and making sure that people got the supplies they needed and and bringing doctors out of retirement and so forth uh, to to deal with it. Are we going to see something politically? I mean, like we're you know that I always thought when, when I heard that you were writing a book about Ebola, I was like, well, that's weird. Like Reed's always been the politics guy, but like all of a sudden, disease and pandemics and and public health care. This is now the political issue. It, it is. I mean, and and. It's it's a sort of definitional differentiation between the two competing factors of our time, which aren't necessarily liberalism and conservatism, but uh, nationalism and and globalism. And um, that sort of change here, we, we've we've looked at this through a, a nationalistic lens. Well, if we can just stop people coming over from China, if we can just stop people coming over from Europe, well, then we'll stop the number of, of cases that are coming into the United States. Let's not forget that the very first case of the coronavirus that diagnosed, confirmed in the United States was an American uh, who had come home from uh, from Wuhan, China. He had some business over there, apparently, uh, and went home to Everett, Washington, you know, near my hometown, uh, and was treated there at a local hospital. And the uh, it, it appears that all of the, the vast majority of the cases that happened in Washington State in the six weeks or so afterwards came from that one person. So it's not like and, and by the way, I'll, I'll say that the World Health Organization advocates against things like travel bans and trade bans. And that's because basically, if you ban travel, you're going to ban doctors and nurses and, and medical professionals from going to the place where they actually need to be. Um, that's what a travel ban does. It isolates the people who need the help the most and therefore exacerbates the, the threat of the virus becoming uh, an epidemic, a pandemic uh, in the long run. And I, one of the things that struck me about about this, you know, um, about this disease, about the, the virus that causes the disease and Ebola is that, you know, in like if you talk to like a, a healthcare worker or an epidemiologist, they'll call Ebola a, a really dumb disease, right? Because it kills the host so quickly. And 
and COVID-19 is like a smart one, right? Because you can get it. And even if you, even if you're asymptomatic or just have like small symptoms, you can spread that thing everywhere before anybody's aware that you have it. So it's like the smart disease. It is a, it is, it is a smarter disease. Uh, there are some signs that it is becoming an even smarter disease. Um, and, and basically what that means is it, it, it is less deadly. Uh, you know, a virus can't live inside a dead body. So if it, you, know, you and I have viruses in us that are like totally symbiotic and, and that, um, that, 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 you know, we don't show any effects and they just live there for the rest of their lives and everybody's fine. This virus uh, kills not too quickly and not as quickly as the Ebola virus. And it's really virulent where it's really transmissible. That is, um, you know, unlike Ebola, something you got to, you have to touch blood or guts or, or throw up or something like that uh, to get infected yourself. This you know, it lives on surfaces for uh, up to 24 hours in, in some studies. Uh, I've actually been really surprised by the number of studies we've seen. Um, we're really learning a ton about this virus really quickly. Um, but the, the fact is there's still a lot we don't know. We do know that it's very transmissible and that it, it can spread before you show symptoms, which does make it a smarter disease. There are signs that it might be mutating a little bit that might make it less deadly, which is a good thing for both us, the people who are trying to recover from it, and for the virus, which, of course, is trying to survive. Uh, and and that, those sort of mutations are how it, it adapts over the long run. Before uh, before we let you go and and before we play the, uh, the our 2018 talk, we were talking about the opioid epidemic, uh, framing you know like what we could learn from it. And one of the things that you know that you you and I were talking about was that we, you know, this was this slower moving thing, and we had failed to conceptualize how big it the opioid epidemic was becoming, and that it it you know it killed as many people in one year as the the, the entire Vietnam War, and. It was it was interesting how quickly our politics changed, how quickly even the president changed his tune from we're going to, you know, do the death penalty for for drug dealers to passing, you know, like legislation to to address some of this uh, that, that enabled like local jurisdictions to get involved uh, in, a, in a more meaningful manner and also got support from the federal government. Um, I mean, we still have a long way to go with the opioids, but it, but we did see almost a sea change. Do you think this is going to change our politics? I mean, we're already seeing what this disaster that happened in Wisconsin where people were, you know, like said that they they couldn't like, you know, mail absentee ballots later as the governor wanted and so forth. And you had people in line for miles. Um, you know, is this do you think this is going to have a lasting effect on our politics once we get through it? God, I hope so. Um, there are there are always lessons to learn from something like this. Uh, and I sincerely hope that we learn every single one. Because as I, as I said, as we talked about, and, and as I will continue to say, the next one is not a question of whether, it's a question of when. Uh, there will be another outbreak, there will be another, whether it's uh, influenza, whether it's um, you know, another coronavirus that we've never seen before, there's gonna be something. This is not the last time that you and I are gonna have this conversation in our lives. And if we do the prevention now, if we spend the, yes, it's going to cost billions of dollars, but if we spend the billions of dollars now, we save trillions over the long term, and more importantly, thousands, maybe millions of lives. Maybe this is the moment when uh, the when when the, the scientists and and, uh, and medical experts get the the due that they deserve, uh, and I sincerely hope 
that we keep those people in the same reverence as we have, say, firefighters after September 11th, because this is their September 11th. More of them are going to die in this outbreak than, than firefighters on September 11th. And, and it's, it's just, I, I mean, I'm like, I'm, I'm vibrating over here. Like I feel, I feel really strongly about learning the lessons of the past and, and, and now in the present so that we don't repeat these in the future. This is something we can never forget. You know, as you said, we're starting to see some signs. I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, when you, when you see T-shirts that say, in Fauci we trust, uh, referring to uh, Anthony Fauci, who's become the, you know, the most trusted man in America, the scientific version of Walter Cronkite, if you will. Um, I mean, we may be on to something. So, Reed, thanks so much. Uh, I, I really appreciate uh, you jumping on the line with us. And I really look forward to having a beer with you in person sometime soon. Boy, I would absolutely love that, Jason. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right. Now we're going to listen to that original podcast that Reed and I did back in March of 2018. From Washington, this is Political Theater, Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Welcome back to Political Theater. The opioid epidemic is a public health crisis that is killing thousands of Americans every single year. Earlier this week, President Donald Trump went to New Hampshire, a state hit particularly hard by opioids, to unveil a new plan to address it. We thought we'd talk to someone who knows something about how governments can be effective in dealing with a public health crisis. Reed Wilson, a national correspondent at The Hill, has a new book out, Epidemic. Reed, welcome to the show. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So let's talk about your book first. Uh, it is it is hot off the press. Your The release party is coming up uh, this coming Tuesday uh, at Kramer Books. Uh, let's, let's talk about it. It starts off talking about the Ebola outbreak of a couple of years ago, but it goes into other territory. A so bit. the uh, book is called Epidemic, Ebola, and the Global Scramble to Prevent the Next Killer Outbreak. And, you know, you and I have spent all this time covering government, and a lot of the things that we talk about in government is what doesn't work and what would you fix. And in a large sense, the story of the Ebola outbreak is a positive story. It's a story about the U.S. government, the only essentially agency in the world who could have really turned the tide on what was the worst Ebola outbreak in the history of uh, that we know of, um, actually coming through and saving millions of lives and doing so in a way that helped build a foundation for public health in three of the poorest countries in the world, literally the countries with the lowest life expectancy and lowest GDP in the entire world and building something that can hopefully prevent the next outbreak before it strikes. It's it's almost tough to recall that, I mean, this, this happened in 2014. It started off in 2014, and we have just been through this sort of fire hose of news of, on politics, and we haven't been challenged in the same way but this. But, I mean, this was, we were in, in some deep yeah. water over, yeah. over this. Uh, like, let's talk a little bit about the history of it and also some of the things that you've uncovered where you say, like, this is what we got right on right. this. So the Ebola outbreak started in December of 2013 with a two-year-old boy in a tiny town called Meliandu up in the mountains in Guinea, which is in West Africa. Um, it spread, radiated from there. Imagine throwing a, a rock into a pool and these sort of waves just trickled out over the border into Liberia, over the border into Sierra Leone, and towards the capitals of those two countries, Freetown and, uh, and Monrovia, uh, which were the first two essentially mega cities to get uh, Ebola. This is the first urban outbreak of Ebola in, in history. 
And uh, from there, the, the global public health authorities like the World Health Organization and the United Nations really fell flat. They weren't able to get ahead of the virus when uh, it should have gotten under control in the first hand. And this is also a region where they'd never seen Ebola. So nobody really expected it to show up there. It usually showed up in countries like Zaire or the Democratic Republic of the Congo, as it's now called, uh, Gabon, Uganda, places like that. Now it's a world away in an area where people didn't really expect it to show up. Public health authorities fell totally flat, and it really was left up to uh, the U.S. government and then eventually the U.K., the French, uh, the African Union. The Chinese government did a surprising amount to combat the the virus uh, to prop up these desperately poor countries, try to get a handle on the virus, and uh, eventually turn the tide. But not before 28,000 people got infected and more than 11,300 died. And one of the things that was striking is just this idea that, you know, th- this, hap- this happens somewhere else. And, and you, you even point out in the book that the name of this village where this two-year-old kid got infected means like the middle of nowhere, right? This is <laughs> as far as we go. This is yeah. as far as we go. So, it, I mean, this was in the, in the deepest part of the continent that was as isolated as it could. Mm-hmm. And it all of a sudden spread within weeks to, you know, population centers with millions of people. And then we also, I mean, we, as, as the United States, I mean, you know, kind of there, there's, I think, a, a tendency to dismiss international news until it starts encroaching on, right. <laughs> on us. And we face like some, some in, infection points or, or infection vectors, if you will, in the United States eventually. Um, now, before we get into like how we responded to that, like let's like you know kind of recap what the United States got right. So at the beginning, the United States was one of the most aggressive uh, governments in sending over responders, and, and basically that is that turned out to be the key in in a country like Sierra Leone. Uh, their, the ratio of healthcare workers to the general population was about five to every ten thousand people. Uh, the basic public health requires at least 20, 22 uh, health responders to every uh, 10,000 people in, in just the, the most impoverished place. So uh, these were already medical systems that needed to be bolstered. And to do so, the U.S. government sent over, first of all, uh, several teams that are called DART teams, uh, disaster something response teams. Uh, that name just just blanked out of my head. But uh, from, from agencies like USAID, uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, And these are agencies that used to pat themselves on the back when they would deploy a dozen, maybe two dozen uh, disease detectives to go find some disease and and contain it. In in the end, CDC deployed 1,400 people uh, to these three countries in West Africa and really changed the whole culture of how we fight disease. A lot of them think of the global public health system as a chain, and the weakest link is is basically as strong. It makes the, the entire chain. Uh, so if there is a place like Guinea or, or Monrovia or Liberia or Sierra Leone where the chain breaks, well, that ends up infecting people in could be Nigeria, could be Europe, could be eventually the United States, and eventually some cases did come over to the U.S. So first of all, the, one of the things that the U.S. got right is we deployed uh, so many public health workers into the hot zone at a time when so many other people were were bailing out. The second thing uh, we were able, because of our special relationship, especially to Liberia, a country created by the United States, where we sent back some uh, some former slaves. Uh, Liberia is a country where the approval rating of the United States government is somewhere around ninety nine percent. I mean, they love us. They are they they are so dependent on us that we were able to send three thousand American troops from the 101st Airborne 
into Liberia to build the facilities that eventually housed and cared for so many thousands of patients. And I mean, the thing that scares a lot of people about the next one is imagine if the next outbreak happens in Pakistan or it happens in Indonesia or it happens in places where we're not popular in some other parts of Africa where the 101st Airborne would have to go in with guns as opposed to with hammers and nails to build these facilities. So the American government really mobilized quickly and more effectively than any other agency in the entire world uh, to get in there and fight that disease. And that sort of speed is what not only what we got right, but what we're best at getting right. So flashing forward, you know, the, the, the you, you made a reference point, and I, I referred also to like Ebola sort of touching us. There were some aid workers that came back. Uh, there were also some people who had visited uh, West Africa who came back and, and exhibited signs of Ebola, a couple of deaths. The what did we do right and what did we do wrong or boneheaded in, right. in the wake of that? Because there was really, there there was almost zero... Uh, danger at, at a certain point. I mean, there, people were concerned, but not, not, it didn't get out right. in the United States. And and the the first person to come back to the U.S. with the disease was, uh, well, not the first, but the first African to show up with the disease was Thomas Eric Duncan. He was from Liberia. He came to, I mean, the guy had just a tragic life story, he spent most of his adult life in a refugee camp, uh, finally ended up getting to come to the U.S. to be with his partner, the woman that he loved, the, the mother of his child, uh, and he showed up and had Ebola. And they eventually ended up uh, taking him to the hospital in Dallas. This was the, the Texas Presbyterian Health Center in Dallas. Uh, and they, initially, nobody bothered to ask him if he'd been in West Africa. So he was allowed to go home. He took some antibiotics. I mean, that's not enough to fight the Ebola disease. So Effectively, the U.S. public health system wasn't ready to handle those cases uh, when they came back. In the end, though, we, uh, we, we, we built up a huge capacity to handle a lot of these isolation cases. There is now at least one hospital in, uh, within 50 miles of 90 percent of Americans and at least one hospital in all 50 states that is capable of treating a patient in isolation. And it's amazing to think, by the way, how much it requires, how many resources it requires to treat just one patient in isolation. One of the nurses who got infected uh, in Dallas came here to the National Institute of Health uh, to be treated, and just treating her required about two dozen medical professionals mm-hmm. around the clock. Uh, so you can imagine, multiply that uh, by the you know tens of thousands or, or even, even a few hundred cases that mm-hmm. might have broken out here. Shifting gears a little bit to the current epidemic that we're facing right now that's in the news right now the opioid crisis i mean you've as you're i mean you've you've written this book but you're also i mean this is part of what you cover you know right. in in your capacity uh, as a correspondent at the hill um friendly rival of, of roll calls um <laughs> friendly and, rival and, of yours yeah, yes <laughs> not so friendly rival sometimes <laughs> we are dealing with a public health crisis yeah. i mean in, in 2016 you know the cdc reported that there were like more than 60,000 overdose deaths in the united states overwhelming majority of those were from heroin or fentanyl or op- some sort of opioid derivative or opioid synthetic opioid mm-hmm. Uh, The president went up to New Hampshire uh, earlier this week. If we don't get tough on the drug dealers, we're wasting our time. Just remember that. We're wasting our time. And that toughness includes the death penalty. The headline was, you know, calls for the death penalty for drug dealers. But there was a lot of other things in this sort of this package. Are we 
are we dealing with an epidemic? Now, I, I realize that this is apples and oranges. Ebola is not the opioid crisis. But we're dealing with way more people who have died yeah. from the opioid epidemic in, just in, recently than died in all of the Ebola epidemic a couple of years ago. How are we dealing this? How would you grade if you're writing the next book right. <laughs> on, on this? How, how are we dealing with it as, as a public health crisis? Well, we're not dealing with it very well. And you can, uh, when, when you're talking about scale, I think that the thing that is most shocking is don't, don't put it next to the Ebola outbreak. Put it next to the Vietnam War. More people died of overdoses last year alone than American soldiers died during the entirety of the Vietnam War. I right. mean, that's shocking. Right. And almost any public health official you talk to will say that this thing is not just not at its peak. It's, it's probably a decade away from being solved. Um, we got ourselves into this opioid epidemic uh, over the course of the last 15 years. Look at the, the statistics on, on overdose deaths, and it goes from a few thousand in the early parts of the 2000s to, as you say, 60,000 today. Uh, this thing is, is multiplied by magnitudes. And the thing to understand is that we're not really dealing with an epidemic. We're dealing with two simultaneous epidemics here. The first started in rural America. It started with opioid pills, um, oxycotton, and things like that. Right. Um, that that people prescription ended up, pain pills. Prescription pain pills. Easy that to people get a prescription. Ended up abusing. Right. And as as we have as we have combated some of that, some of the over prescriptions, uh, some of the the pill mills in places like West Virginia and Kentucky that are prescribing, you know, literally millions of of individual pills in towns the size of this office building that we're sitting in right now. As we have begun to crack down on that. The drug dealers then stepped in and started dealing heroin and then fentanyl, which is you know multiples more deadly, uh, more potent than heroin is. And it's not the typical drug war that we think of. It's not drugs coming across the southern border in Mexico. I mean, some of it is that, but it's also drugs coming in from China. Fentanyl is is so potent and so powerful that you can fit fifty or sixty thousand doses in the size of a business size envelope, slap a first class stamp on it, and boom, it comes to the U.S. and there it is. There are so many millions of pieces of mail coming in that there's no possible way we can screen them all. So we've got this, this uh, rural crisis that began with the pills and then moved to heroin. And now we've got the drug dealers moving into more, more urban areas. Uh, and you, the, the fastest growing population of those who are, who are overdosing are minorities in city centers. So it started with the sort of the white urban rural population. It's now moved into a much more diverse rural or urban population, which demands a different approach. First of all, we've got to understand the scope of the crisis. Second of all, we have to figure out how to actually deal with it. And how we deal with it, first of all, is to control the number of pills that are being prescribed. Or A lot of states have, have limited the number of opioid prescriptions. I remember um, probably a decade ago, I broke my ankle. I had some surgery on it, and, and as I'm walking out, they give me this bottle of pills of, of opioids. Uh, I mean, there must have been 60 pills in there, and I think I took two of them before I threw the rest of the bottle away. Uh, there's no reason to right. have a you know a, a 30 day dose uh, when you've got pain that's going to last for two or three days or something like that. And so a part of that is new rules on prescriptions. But then uh, the second part is cracking down on the heroin and fentanyl that's coming in uh, that is causing far more deaths than the actual pills themselves. And that involves uh, not only prosecuting a drug war in in Latin America as we've been doing for the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, but also now realizing that the second front has opened in China and figuring out a way to deal with, with that. And I, I don't have any, any particular answer, but you know, just as a lot of these crises 
uh, especially things like like the the cigarette smoking uh, was dealt with by the states. I think we're probably likely to see the solution come from the states and then move up to the federal level. So you're not particularly encouraged that uh, just threatening the death penalty, as the president did, uh, of a drug dealer is going to just sort of wipe out this this, to- this topic, <laughs> wipe out this so, issue. Uh, who who is it who is going to be subject to the death penalty? Is it going to be the drug makers themselves who started this crisis? Is it going to be the, um, the, the fentanyl manufacturers in China who are, are fomenting this crisis? Pharmacy managers who are yeah. signing, or with a wink and a nod, are right. signing off hey, two doses? By yeah. the way, fun little uh, side note on this. There was a governor back in 1998 who banned his state's uh, Medicaid, I think it was, from prescribing opioids because he saw this crisis coming. He knew that this was going to be uh, a, a massively addictive substance that, uh, that ended up costing lives. That governor's name was Howard Dean. Interesting. This is a multi-pronged sort of topic, but I want to ask like one more question before we wrap it up. On one thing that it's, it almost sounds callous to talk about the money part of it, but last month we had Jan Rader, who's the, the fire chief in Huntington, West Virginia. She was Joe Manchin's guest of the State of the Union. And she said, you know, like in addition to just the human costs of people dying and, and just the, the emptying out of the city of Huntington in West Virginia, this is a this is a problem that has the potential to bankrupt the country because she and she just did sort of like a back of the envelope math of like how many people were what they were spending to address overdoses either through deaths or injuries or or first responder calls is that an exaggeration to think that this could actually bankrupt the country dealing with this problem if it's, well, if it's left unchecked? I haven't done the, the back of the envelope math that, that uh, she's probably much more qualified to do than I am. But uh, what, I, what I will say, that the common thread here between an outbreak like Ebola, uh, an epidemic like the opioid epidemic, and whatever comes next, what the WHO calls disease X, uh, is that it is a lot cheaper to fund prevention than it is to fund uh, recovery or, or fighting whatever has already broken out. So if you're able to get on top of something in, in the beginning, it's going to cost you a lot less over the long term, even though that money is not as sexy as spending money on a, a current crisis. You always have to think about the next one. Reed, thanks a lot for joining us on Political Theater. You got it, Jason. Good luck with the book. Thanks, man. 